turn to Romans chapter 14. Some of you may be saying, finally. I heard one pastor saying who was preaching through Romans many years that the kids in the youth group were taking bets on which graduating class he would finish preaching through Romans. Today we begin a section on Christian liberty, and so this will be called Christian Liberty Defined Today. I'm going to go ahead and just read the first um, ten verses here. Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believes that he may eat all things, another who is weak eats herbs. Let not him that eats despise him that eats not. And let not him which eats not judge him that eats. For God has received him. Who are you that judges another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Yes, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regards the day regards it to the Lord. And he that regards not the day to the Lord, he does not regard it. He that eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he that eats not to the Lord, he eats not and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself and no man dies to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. We'll just stop right there. So let us pray. Father, we come before you this day so grateful for your mercies and thankful, Lord, for the grace that just helps us to love each other in spite of our current condition, in spite of the fact that we still have diseases that are being healed, things that are still being purged, things that the great physician is still working on. Lord, I just pray you would help us all to be as patient with each other as you are with us. And you'd help us to love each other and to receive each other as this text commands us to do because you have received us. So Lord, we pray for preaching grace and hearing grace. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I just want to do kind of an overview today of Christian liberty and talk a little bit about it. I'm not sure if we'll even get far enough to start digging in to some of these verses today, but um, let's just set the ground before we go into this. It'll, I think, help us as we go through talking about this section. What is Christian liberty? That's the question that we're going to be answering as we go through the next chapter and a half. This section goes from Romans 14.1 through 15.13. That is one of the longest sections in this letter. And I'll just remind you that in the history of those who have gone through this letter and studied this letter in depth, there has been great revival 
that has taken place. And uh, it's one of the things I pointed out. So every part of this letter is important. And it's for your strengthening and preparation for that place where you're going to live forever. All of this is flowing from Romans 12 as we began the practical section of Romans in chapter 12, which begins, be transformed, right? Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then immediately he says, by being humble. By being humble. And so we we see that right there in the first part of the practical section, he's given us instructions on how to love each other. And he's getting into more detail now in chapter 14. Back in chapter 12 and verse 3, he said, For I say through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according to God, as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. That's all over chapter 14 and 15. Humility. And then in verse 9, in that same chapter 12, he said, Let love be without dissimulation, be without division, without strife. He says, Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. And in verse 10, and Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. That's the detail he's getting into now in chapter 14 and 15. How we love one another in honor, preferring one another. In verse 16 of that same chapter, Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. In verse 18, If it be possible, as much as lies in you, live at peace with all men. And then he'll wind up that chapter by saying, Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. And then he goes on in chapter 13, and the way that we love one another and we love our neighbor is buying in submission to the government who has the responsibility to enforce the Ten Commandments. And so there was verses there. talked about... um, Obeying the government as far as they are in alignment with the moral law. Pay your taxes. It says, love works no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul's going to be talking about the detail about how we love our neighbor in chapter 14 and 15. And he would wind up uh, there talking about the return of Christ. He's saying, you know, the night is far spent. There's this urgency about... Our life as believers, the night is far, the day is at hand. Let's cast off darkness and put on light. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh, he would say. And then he begins this chapter, him that is weak. Him that is weak. 35 verses that he will begin instructing us on how to get along with one another. Now, if he takes that many verses to instruct us on how to get along with each other, what does that imply? That it's not easy. There's great difficulty in this. And we'll talk about that and why that's difficult. I think you already know that, but we'll, we'll see in his instructions, how we apply that today. And so again, what is 
Christian liberty. I was just thinking about that. How could I boil that down? I didn't want to use somebody else's definition, but I wanted to just think about what does it mean to be free in Christ, to have complete liberty. If I could boil it down in one sentence, I would put it this way. It means being set free from sin to love freely. Being set free from sin to love freely. And so first, I want to go through and talk about an overview of different verses that talk about Christian liberty to give us a good overview of the overall teaching in the New Testament. I won't get to all of it, but I'm just going to give you some points now about what the Scripture teaches us about Christian liberty. And so our next point is Christian liberty is to be set free from the law of sin. Christian liberty is to be set free from the law of sin. Romans 8.2 For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. So Christian liberty is being set free from this law of sin and death. The, the next thing... The second point I would give you is that Christian liberty is to be set free from having to keep the moral law for salvation. Christian liberty is to be set free from having to keep the Ten Commandments to be saved. Romans 7, 6. But now we are delivered from the law that being dead wherein we were held that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in oldness of the letter. So we are delivered from the law from the standpoint of being made righteous. What does the law do? It proves we can't be made righteous by the law. For if salvation had been by the law, then Christ died in vain. So the new creation the new person, the redeemed person born of the Spirit, you now have the spirit of liberty from slavery to sin and death. You are free. You are free. Can you imagine on that day of the Emancipation Proclamation when all of the slaves in this country heard the news that they had been set free from slavery? Can you imagine the the ring that went up. Free at last! Free at last! The rejoicing that took place in their streets, knowing their children were not going to have to be born in slavery anymore. It must have been great joy at that time. But I'll tell you something. Those who were believers in Jesus Christ already knew they were free. And Christ says that over in Corinthians. He says that person that is a slave is Christ's free man. And the person... That is free is Christ's slave. The other thing that I would tell you about Christian liberty is that this liberty has to be maintained. Galatians 5.1 Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free 
and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And why was he saying that in chapter 5 of Galatians? You know, he's gone through that, that letter in Galatians because there were some who came in and said, you can't be saved unless you're circumcised. And that sets forth the whole principle in Galatians that you can't add anything to free grace. You're saved by salvation through Christ, through grace. It's free. And we can't say we're, we're saved 50% by grace and then the other 50% I've got to do good works. That is bondage because... Th- through thousands of years of history, what did history prove about the Jews and keeping the law? They couldn't keep it. And so Paul would say, Peter, you know at that time when he had to rebuke Peter, he said, why are you trying to bring people back into bondage to the law that we couldn't keep? We couldn't do it. Christ kept it for us. That's the good news of the gospel. Christ finished the great work by keeping those commandments and then imputing to us the righteousness of His perfection in His perfect life. This liberty must be maintained. And if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Isn't that good news to be set free from condemnation and conscience? And the guilt of sin to be set free from that? And we can still grieve over that and not have the guilt. So this liberty must be maintained. The next point, point four, is that Christian liberty is to be set free from the fear of death. Hebrews 2.15 And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Isn't that a great liberty to be set free from the fear of death? And, and, to be, and when you're set free from the fear of death, that means you can take a risk in serving Christ with your body. Whenever my friend, the seven who come here and speak periodically and come back with their families are over in Africa, whenever they first started to go over there, um, there were many who condemn them for taking their children to a dangerous place. But if you're set free in Christ, you're free to serve Him in the most dangerous places in the world. Because you don't fear death. You can spend your life and be spent for Christ. So being free from the fear of death is a great, great liberty for us. Because Christ has conquered death. So Paul would say, Death, where is thy sting? Grave, where is your victory? You have no victory over me. Christ conquered the grave, rose from the grave. He's on the right hand of God now, seated in the power of authority. And all those who are in Christ will be there with Him also. Because He prayed that with His Father. I pray that those whom I love, that you've given me, be with me where I am also. That's going to happen someday going to be completely fulfilled someday. Knowing that sets us free from the fear of any bondage in this world. Being free from the fear of death. And the fifth thing that I would point out to you about 
this Christian liberty is that it is a glorious liberty. Romans 8.21 Sin was so bad that it contaminated the entire creation, the entire universe. I don't know if some of y'all are seeing these pictures that are coming from the new telescope. But they're just, you see them and, you know, your knees buckle and you just bow down when you see such glory. That this infinite going on and on and on of galaxies and billions and billions of galaxies and stars and the infinity of it is representative of God's infinite mind and power and ability. And it, and it just brings you to this, this place of worship and that's glorious. But all of that was contaminated by sin. And Romans 8.21 tells us that there's going to come a day when even the creation itself is going to be set free from the bondage of sin under this grieving under sin, Romans 8.21, because the creature, the creation itself, also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty. There it is. Glorious liberty of the children of God. It's a glorious liberty. The next thing I would give you, number six, is that this liberty is not to be abused. This liberty is not to be abused. Galatians 5.13 For brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. You see, there it is. Liberty sets you free to do what? Love one another. If you say, I have Christian liberty to do sin, that's the abuse of it. Uh, I saw another one of these things. I see them every year. It pops up, you know, Christian nudist colony. That's an abuse of Christian liberty. And you look at that and you just have to wonder. So it's not to be abused. We're not to use it for an occasion to the flesh. We're not to use, say, because I'm set free from sin, I can now sin. But we are to serve one another. 1 Corinthians 8, 9. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. So this Christian liberty also sets us free from demanding that our conscience and our convictions must be everybody's. This liberty sets us free from demanding that our conscience and our convictions on eating, drinking, dress, whatever, that I I have to have this liberty and I have to have this right. Let me tell you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you will be sensitive to your fellow brothers and sisters in the things that you do because you do not want to cause one of these little ones to stumble. And number seven, the gospel is the law of liberty proclaimed. Isaiah 61.1 Jesus Christ, about 2,000 years ago, walked into a little chapel 
stood up, he opened the Bible, the Scriptures, and he read this text. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Glory, hallelujah. That Christ came preaching good tidings. He preached the gospel, the good news, to the brokenhearted. And He proclaimed liberty to those that were captives, opening the prison. What was, what was that captivity in that prison? It's sin. To be in bondage, a slave, to your desires, to your stomach, to your appetites of your eyes or your ears is to be in bondage to sin. Those who demand and say, I listen to whatever I want, watch whatever I want, do whatever I want, drink whatever I want, those who are in that place are slaves to the flesh. Christian liberty sets us free from sin through this glorious proclamation of liberty that Jesus Christ has made. James puts it this way, James 1.25, But whoso looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein, he being not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the word, this man shall be blessed in his deed. James is speaking to us of this perfect law of liberty which sets us free to do what? Work, good works is one of the emphasis there. And it sets us free to control this tongue. He spends a lot of time on the tongue. He spends a lot of time, too, on people looking down on each other based on socioeconomic standing. And number eight, speaking of Christian liberty... False teachers will use the idea of Christian liberty to bring you back into bondage again. We sort of touched that already as I spoke of Galatians and the Galatians letter. Beware of false teaching. It comes dressed up in every garb and every form with Bible verses quoted and other things dressing it up. And you've got to beware. You just have to beware. False teachers. Obviously, the most blatant forms of false teaching are taught to us in Second Peter 2.19. While they promise them liberty, these false teachers come promise liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption for of whom a man is overcome of the same is he brought in bondage. What is Peter saying there? When these false teachers come who are servants of corruption, that is the flesh and of sexual sin, every form of wickedness, they are overcome of those things and they are in bondage to those things. And they proclaim, oh, this is my liberty to do this. It's my liberty to do this. Jude 1.4 would put it 
in a similar fashion. Jude teaches, For there are certain men crept in unawares. They appear to be part of the flock. Who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. That means they they say, free grace, we're saved by free grace. I can live any way I want. God's already paid for my sins, so it doesn't matter if I do sin. They were ordained to condemnation, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So through their behavior, they prove that they really deny the Lord and God and His Word. When you demand the right to exercise your Christian liberty at the expense of everyone else, you're in bondage to the very thing that you're demanding. So we live in a country where people often demand their rights. Right? We, we live in that country today where people are always demanding rights. And actually, they're, in, they're slaves to sin, and they have no liberty at all. They think that having these particular rights set them in free, and they don't understand the real state of their heart and what real liberty is. I went back just this morning, actually, and re- reread that quote by Patrick Henry. You know, give me liberty or give me death. If you go look at that speech, there's Bible all over that speech. Because their understanding of liberty his understanding of liberty flowed from a born-again man who was free and understood what bondage was. Christian liberty is a beautiful thing, but it must be guarded, must be protected. And we have to think deeply over these things because we all have different consciences and convictions on particular things. Martin Luther has a quote on this that was very good, I found. It says, A Christian man is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. A Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. And as it was with the master, so it is with the servant. Christ came and made himself a Slave, so that we might be made free. So you are to receive all whom Christ receives in love without making any harsh judgments against them. So we've got a little bit of time. Let's go ahead and just start going through some of the text here. You are to receive everyone. He says that. Him that is weak in the faith receive you, but not to doubtful disputations. You are to to receive everyone in Christ without controversy. And so there's this difference between weak and strong believers. Weak generally translated as sick, not completely whole. And here the imperative is that you are to take them to yourself. Has Christ received them? Then you are to receive them also. 
wherever there is even a mustard seed of faith, those that call upon the name of Christ in sincerity and truth are to be received as the body of Christ. We don't put conditions on people and say, well, you have to believe everything in the 1689 London Baptist Confession or you can't be a Christian. There has to be some fundamental things they've got to understand about sin, repentance, and faith. But we don't put conditions on people that they can't understand or keep yet if they're just babes in Christ. The best believers and the strongest of believers yet have some leprosy that the physician is dealing with right now in this room. You see, when the Lord looks at your life, He sees your whole life from beginning to end. He sees all of it. When you look at your brother or sister, all you're seeing is right now. And so when you look at your brother or sister and you're seeing maybe they're having a little outbreak of leprosy or they've got some spiritual acne going on or whatever might be happening, we're not to look at that and judge them on that and look down at them on that. In fact, we should look at that them and it should grieve our hearts and we should go to prayer and say, God, I know you're the great physician. I know you already know about this, but Lord, please help my brother or my sister with this that I see. You are to receive those that are weak in the faith, but not to doubtful disputations. What is that doubtful disputation? More of this old English. We've got to weed through that, don't we? Doubtful means, the word actually means deliberating within yourself, generally related to doubting and Disputation just means discrimination, to discriminate. James dealt with that with the rich. He said, you're not to give preference to rich people. I heard of a church in Dallas one time where a lot of the big pro athletes went, and they had a special section in that church just for the pro athletes down front. James forbids that. All of those who are in Christ are equal in Christ. And He has received them all, and we are also to receive them. And we're not to give more credence to them because they're rich, or they got a big fat bank account, or they got some big job. We're, the great equalizers, we're all sinners, we're all in the same boat of condemnation, back to Romans chapter 2, and without grace and mercy, that's where we would remain, regardless of whatever we have in this world. So we are to receive those that are weak. Matthew 12, 20, Christ put it this way, A bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory. That was a prophecy of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament that was fulfilled. Christ doesn't break a bruised reed. What is a bruised reed? Has anybody walked by the river and seen the reeds out there? So they're these little thin grassy-like things that grow up. And uh, they're really strong when they're intact. But once it's broken, it will not stand up again. It just flops like this. The bruised reed will he not break. The promise is that Christ, no matter how weak you are and bruised you are, and you can't stand up straight, He receives you and He will not break you. He will take you to Himself. Isn't that good news? 
And so what are we to do? We're to be just like that. We're to do the same to others. We're to do the same to others. The bruised reed will he not break. Verse 2, he goes on and says, For one believes that he may eat all things, another who is weak eats herbs. We have to understand the history here. If you just take a look, what's going on in Rome in 28 A.D.? What's going on during this time period? Well, we know from reading this letter that there are Jews and Gentiles in the church. We know that the Jews are coming out of a tradition of hundreds of years, hundreds of years, eating a particular way. Right? We know that the Gentiles are also coming out of a tradition in Rome where you have the gods and the goddesses and particular way of eating. And Paul will deal with this in Corinthians. He talks more about this, about meat that was sacrificed to idols. And so you have these different traditions. People coming from different backgrounds. One of them eats pork barbecue and the other one doesn't. And so when they get together in the church, there can be differences of opinion there. There's also a group of Jews known the Essenes that were completely vegetarian. Maybe some of these people here were out of that community. But we're not to let these, what we would say, non-essential things come between us as believers in Christ. We don't say, well, you know, this is the way you ought to eat and you'll be more healthy and feel better if you eat this way. We can't impose that upon everybody. Everybody's got to understand their own body and they have to understand their own disciplines about what they need to take care of their body. And we've got to give each other the liberty to be able to do that. So we're not to do that. Uh, I heard a pastor this week even speaking about in Scotland they eat blood pudding. Doesn't sound very good, do it? I think they call it black pudding and uh, to rename it. But it is actually made from blood, and there's discussion, you know, there. And you could see there could be a real controversy that would arise in a Scottish church over, well, in the Old Testament, it says we're not to eat blood. But yet, in the New Testament, those laws of dietary restrictions are done away. Christ, I think, made that clear in Roman Mark 7.18 when he says... Are you also without understanding? Don't you see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not into his heart, but into his stomach and is expelled. So Jesus is saying there, it's not what you eat that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of your heart that makes you unclean. But everyone that is born in Christ has a conscience and they have freedom and liberty to make choices around diet and the way that we live and we're to let each other have that liberty and not condemn each other in that. Verse 3 Let not him that eats despise him that eats not and let not him that eats which eateth not judge him that eateth for God has received him. So You are not to despise or judge. That's a command, imperative verb here. The first command is you're to receive them. 
The second command is you're not to despise them or judge them. Don't judge. That's an imperative. Don't pronounce an opinion where it doesn't belong. Despise here is a strong word. It means to treat with contempt or to mock openly. And so we would do well to guard ourselves against this tendency to judge others against our own opinions and preferences, weaknesses or strengths. One of the greatest strengths that we have being made in God's image is the ability to think, to reason, and to judge. God is judging the world in righteousness every day. We being made in God's image have this ability to discern and to judge and make judgments. We're always assessing. We're always thinking. And we're always forming opinions of others. And the sin nature takes that gift of judgment and discernment and can turn that into sinful thinking and behavior. Why are they so strict? Don't they know they have liberty in Christ? Why are they so loose? Don't they know the dangers of sin and the world? You may be doing it now. Why did he use that word instead of this word? Doesn't he know that tie doesn't go with his shirt? We're always doing that. We're always making these assessments and judgment. That's a great gift. That's what makes us glorious in God's image. But we are to use that properly. Let's take a look at Luke chapter 7 just to see an example and to think about this a little bit. In Luke chapter 7, we have this beautiful story. Verse 36, a woman comes to wash Jesus' feet. And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. Luke 7, 36. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city which was a sinner... When she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment. Where did she get the money to buy that? Doesn't she know women aren't allowed in here when the men are eating? And stood at his feet behind him weeping. And began to wash his feet with tears. And did wipe them with the hairs of her head. And kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Appalling. Doesn't she know that's improper? Somebody get her out of here. Now when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it, he spake within himself. Here is that judgment 
that gift that you have taking place. You're speaking within yourself. Saying, this man, this is what this Pharisee is saying in himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that touches him, for she is a sinner. He can't be the Messiah. He's letting a filthy, contaminated whore touch him. And Jesus answering said, what's Jesus answering? He didn't say anything. Jesus knew what he was thinking. Oh, should that make us all tremble a little bit? The next time we start having a critical thought about the length of somebody's skirt or this or that, and thinking, Jesus knows what I'm thinking about his slave. Jesus answered and said, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto you. And he said, say on, master. He's a hypocrite. He calls him master now after he just condemned him in his heart. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500, the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which one of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he gave forgave most. And he said unto him, You have rightly judged. Isn't it amazing that he can rightly judge when the story is put forth this way? And yet he was just making an evil judgment in his heart. And he turned to the woman and and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman, I entered into your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with tears, and wiped them with the hairs of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman since the time I came in hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil you did not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I say unto you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And he said unto her, your sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, you see, here's more judgment taking place in everybody's minds. Who is this that forgives sins? Also, and some may have been doing that in the right way and some may have been doing it in the wrong way. Some may have been saying, can he really forgive me? Can he, if he can forgive her, he can forgive me. And others are saying, that's blasphemy. And then he said to the woman, your faith hath saved you. Go in peace. Oh, the glorious peace of being forgiven. And so we are to afford that peace to our brothers and sisters in non-essential matters of judgment and being long-suffering for each other. For God has received him. That's in verse 3. We are to receive them. Why? For God has received them. 
Matthew 18.10, listen to what Christ said about receiving. Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. Don't despise the littlest and the weakest in the kingdom. And you remember the parable of the Pharisee and the publican praying? And what did Jesus say? How did He introduce that parable? He said, He spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. And in Acts, the Holy Spirit comes and makes no difference between Jew and Gentile. In Acts 15, And God, which knows the heart, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as He did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. In Ephesians 3, Paul would say, He's broken down the middle wall of partition between us. So whatever the cultural differences, whatever the differences that we do, whether celebrating days or diet or these things, those are the things that are not to get into the way of our loving one another. For who are you that judges another man's servant? He would say in verse 4. The problem is, you see, that Christians seem to be always dumping on one another. John Brown, I heard this quote this week, John Brown said, the world we will be converted when the church is united. When there's no more division and strife in the church, if all the church was one around the world and everybody could see the glorious, loving community of faith, wouldn't that be a testimony? Wouldn't that be a testimony? So this is the hard part of being a Christian. 35 verses he will spend on this. And there are some other issues today. I'll give you a couple of them. There are other things that I think fall under the category of Christian liberty and discernment that have divided Christians. And I've already mentioned a couple. Think about it if somebody goes through a great trial, a Christian, like a man, I knew a man in Texas, he was a godly man, he had a big family. And he lost his, he, he kept getting a job, and in a short time he would lose his job. He went through this trial for several years of just losing job after job. He was in the startup industry as a programmer. And, uh, and it's possible in a case like that where somebody might say, you know what, there must be some sin in that man's life that's causing him to keep losing his job. That would be a wrong judgment. People go through a great trial of divorce. In the past, this has been made an unforgivable sin in the church, which is wrong. And somebody can say, well, that happened, or look down at somebody that's been through that kind of a trial. That's not right. There may be variations. I've seen in marriage variations of uh, piety. I've seen uh, marriages where the wife was the one who read and studied all the time, and the husband didn't. That could cause a wife 
to grieve over that situation and maybe even to, to fall into some harsh judgments against her husband. What would you say about a man that went through seminary, for example, and he was ordained, but he seldom preached? He never went to prayer meetings. And this went on for years. He, he, there were even times he would fail to attend church for weeks at a time. And he spent all of his time in library reading books. And he did that for more than 20 years. I mean, we might be tempted to say, yeah, I don't even know if that man's born again or not. I mean, wouldn't you? you know, you're looking at that kind of bizarre behavior. His name was James Strong, who created Strong's Concordance for the Bible. And was probably such a nerd, and he was so focused on the project God gave him that he just couldn't break away from it. He was just so locked in. And that kind of behavior looked weird to everybody. So we've got to be patient and long-suffering with one another. I even remember hearing about a story with Charles Spurgeon. A young Christian came up to Charles Spurgeon and uh, he said, Oh no, somebody gave me a box of cigars. What am I supposed to do with these? And Charles Spurgeon said, Give them to me and I'll smoke them to the glory of God. Now I don't know if that was the right response to a young Christian in that case or not, but he was illustrating Christian liberty there. Francis Schaeffer said that Speaking of the chasm, y'all know the chasm in the story of Lazarus and the rich man? The chasm that cannot be crossed? Francis Schaeffer said that we put that chasm in the wrong place many times. We as believers put that chasm between other believers rather than between the good and the bad, the wicked and the righteous. And so we must remember, my convictions in what we consider non-essential matters are not everyone's convictions. Our conscience is at liberty. It is free in Christ. But we must use wisdom because we cannot injure someone else's conscience even though yours is free. So we have to be willing to even submit our conscience in the things that we are free to do if it will injure another person. We'll talk more about this in the coming weeks. So it is Christ that sets us free. It is Christ that when we come to Him and confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts that He has been raised from the dead, that we are saved and we are at liberty now to love like nobody else can love. They will know us by our love. So let us continue to grow in grace as we study this letter together so that we might be seen to be lovers of Christ and lovers of our neighbors.